Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today we have Alex Cheney back on, who hosts the amazing Yang Daily podcast. Say hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. <laughs> the last episode he was on with us was uh, number 141 on authoritarianism, where Alex broke down all of the, well, not all, actually, I'd say maybe about a fourth of the evidence for the fact that Trump is a threat to uh, civilization, to the rule of law, to the Constitution, to democracy, etc. Um, and it still took over an hour to get through just a fourth of the things that Trump has done. Uh, if we were to do all of them, it would be a four-part episode. But anyway, now he's coming back on to talk about a similar topic, but with a more positive spin. Uh, democracy reform. You want to uh, introduce us to this topic, Alex? Yeah, well, I mean, since we already like tackled and uh, fixed authoritarianism, obviously the next step is to go yeah, on to problem solved, democracy, well right? Yeah. Mission solved. accomplished. Uh, so I thought maybe, uh, obviously there's a lot of issues that we have in our democracy right now, which are kind of, uh, you know, and, and democratic barriers, let's say. Um, that we should probably review to just kind of go over what are the problems with the current system. And uh, then the hopeful part would be uh, what we might be able to do about it in the upcoming administration, which I hope will be a different one. And uh, then we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about what we can expect in the upcoming election in November and uh, what we as citizens need to be prepared for and need to be aware of. Does that sound sound good? Yeah. So I want to make sure you're following me here. So, or I'm following you rather. Um, okay. So you want to talk about the current problems with our democracy first, and then talk about some future reforms we could do possibly in um, the next administration, but down the road. And then you want to conclude with uh, some, with just what we should expect in this coming election, what possible election issues might arise. Yes. All right. Well, let's take it away. Uh, by the way, Alex, I have to say you do a really good job, you know, kind of succinctly breaking down really complex issues like you did with authoritarianism. If you guys have not listened to number 141 with Alex, definitely recommend it. Um, I you spend too much time every day following every single thing that Donald Trump does. And I was I always feel overwhelmed because it's hard to keep track of it. It's hard to remember. No you know, yeah, I think I think Sam Harris once said something like uh, if Donald Trump were better he would seem worse but because he's so bad it's it's almost impossible to keep track of all of the awful things he's he's done and so i was really impressed at alex's ability to succinctly go through that list so take us through uh, what are the current problems uh with democracy in the united states alex well thank you i appreciate that i, I try and it should be noted that you know overwhelming people with all of the bad things going on is part of trump's plan so uh nobody should be feeling feeling bad about uh, getting lost in that. Yeah. As you said in that episode, that is actually one of the authoritarian, one of the tools in the authoritarian playbook. Right. And, you know, it's not even necessarily about people think of it as, oh, you have propaganda and you put out lies. Um, but, you know, that that actually works when you get to a more advanced stage, as we see in Russia. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but earlier, earlier authoritarians earlier in the process, before they've completely taken control of all of the institutions of society uh, will will often just try to overwhelm people so that they can't you know undermine faith in 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 the news, um, right. get people to doubt their what they see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears, uh, and just kind of demoralize people so that they they so that they think we've already lost and just give up, or so that they prefer the 
the propaganda of the uh, would-be dictator over the actual news. That's exactly. what the whole fake news Which thing is Which leads in well to democracy because, uh, as we've seen, a lot of people are feeling the same way, um, that there are so many problems with democracy that they feel unrepresented and they just give up and they don't vote, which is a huge problem. Um, I mean, depending on who the person is, I guess, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, you want people yeah, I don't know. Some democracy. of the people I talked to on Twitter, I think I'd rather they didn't, but <laughs> right. <laughs> <I see your point. laughs> Separate problem. Uh, so um, I guess to kind of start at the base of it, uh, we would start with what Lawrence Lessig calls the money primary. So, uh, you know, before somebody runs for office, there's basically an understanding that you need a certain amount of money. Um, because no matter like how great your policy is, how much you appeal to the people, if you don't have the money to even like uh, get your your name out there and your policy out there and whatever to to get access to the people, then you're not going to win. So it does take a certain amount of money, and uh, you know there are exceptional cases where some grassroots candidate might be able to you know raise enough money from small donations, but for the most part. A lot of that money usually comes from special interest groups or corporate groups or whatever. Uh, that's that's the traditional path. So what Lawrence Lessig describes that as is basically moneyed interests are picking the candidates that get to run, which basically means that the people just get a vote among the candidates that are pre-chosen by those moneyed interests. Um, so there's the, the uh, known line about, you know, I don't care who does the voting as long as I get to do the nominating. Same yeah. same principle there. Yeah, um, and I, I imagine you'll get into possible reforms to that problem in, in the next part. Uh, but yes. yeah, just for now, uh, my take on it would be, I think it is important not to pander too much to populist narratives. And I know you agree with this, Alex, so I'm just coming in here. <clears throat> you know, everybody, regular people, regular voters like you and me also have a responsibility here too, because the only reason that under the current system, um, muddied interests get away with that is because we keep voting for them because we don't bother to inform ourselves. We don't bother to get information from uh, credible sources. We vote based on, you know, like what, whose ads we see on TV, while we're watching, you know, some escapist infotainment, infotainment. And, you know, like I, I enjoy escapist infotainment as much as anybody, but that's not a very smart way to, you know, be informed politically. It's just wait for the ad to come on TV. Right. And then, of course, there's also the problem of partisans who just check every box with an R or every box with a D, um, but then also don't participate in the primary uh, for their party. And and so you know, that's, that's one of my big frustrations is I, I see a lot of populists complaining about but both options suck. We only get two options. And it's like, okay, how many of you guys actually voted in the primary? Exactly. Yeah. You know? And then of course, if some of them did vote in the primary, most of them didn't, they'll, then they'll say like, oh yeah, but that was rigged. That wasn't a real primary, you know? And, and, and that, that goes back to our, to our whole point about people, you know, being cynical and buying into the authoritarian lie that our democracy is already fake. So why bother? Yeah. It's kind of like a lot, most people, uh, the way that they engage with the system is they come in at the very end of the process and then they complain about their choices not being good when they skipped all of the part of the process where you select the choices. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's very problematic. And as we've discussed before, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to undersell like the personal responsibility aspect. Um, 
But as we discussed before, it's kind of all tied in with, you know, economics and, uh, you know, how much time people have to invest in democracy, how much time they have to research. And uh, most people, you know, they feel really burnt out. They don't want to get involved in politics all the time, which that it, there is personal responsibility there. Um, people should be more involved in civics. They should recognize how important it is and that they need to be participating uh, from start to finish. Um, so hopefully, you know, if we can get some reforms through like UBI, then people will feel less stressed by their their uh, their jobs and whatnot, and we'll have more time to participate. And that's the hope. But uh, so for now, just thinking about like what we can do to reform the system versus what we can do to reform uh, how people choose to engage with the system is kind of a separate another issue. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I have to say I'm. I'm more skeptical than most people in the Yang gang about whether or not certain kinds of reforms will actually result in, in improving the behavior of the average person all that much. Like UBI, um, Like UBI, yeah. But yeah, of course, there's more direct uh, reforms that we could do to solve the problem of uh, the money primary using Lawrence yes. Lessig's term. I think I think that's a really I think that's a great term actually. And, you know, the, the reason that it takes a bunch of money to run is because you know it's expensive to get ads on TV. It's expensive to get ads on the radio. It's expensive right. to you know bust yourself around the country and talk to people and all of that. Um, and you know, if Americans w were with or without a UBI more invested in their democracy and actually reading newspapers and magazines and learning about the candidates with directly in ways that don't cost the candidates millions of dollars, it would be less of a problem. And, and, you know, frankly, I hate the freaking ads on TV. Um, you know, the, uh, Lincoln project ads amuse me endlessly because it's never Trump conservatives like me bashing on Trump for being a, right. a fake conservative, which, you know, is very amusing, but generally speaking in a normal election between two qualified, decent people, seeing all these negative attack ads on TV is just taxing, you know? Um, it's it's also limiting your audience in a big way because younger people don't watch cable television, but that's a whole yeah. other story. Of course, it's also expensive to advertise on social media these days. I mean, Facebook makes you spend money to reach your own fans. Right. Um, which So that kind of gets into one, one other aspect, which is, uh, you know, how you access people through the media. So what I was thinking of when you were uh, mentioning... Uh, local papers and stuff is uh, I recently read about this story where basically local papers across the country as they shut down because they can't fund themselves anymore are being replaced by these propaganda machines, partisan propaganda. Uh, so they basically, they have these networks of websites that have like thousands of local paper websites or they pose as local paper websites anyway. And they basically just funnel partisan propaganda into local communities, replacing what was there, which was actual you know, journalism that cared about the local communities. This is basically ignoring what's going on locally and it's just talking about politics and it's pushing a particular narrative. Sometimes they even like just uh, send a template article to these local authors and they're basically like, Put your name on this and modify it a little bit and, uh, you know, push this hit piece through. And it's basically just laundering propaganda through people's through local names. Um, so that's some of the that's some of the problem that's going on with uh, access, people's access to uh, good information that would inform their democratic decisions. 
Yeah. Um, so are you talking about them publishing it like in the local paper then when they receive this information? So they make these websites that pose as local. They pose as local news. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I mean, back in the day, you could do that with a local newspaper and the places that still have them, you can, you can still do it. You know, you put out a press release and a lot of, you know, local journalists are not super duper professional. Many of them are like, you know, high school kids or college right. kids who, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, even without malice, they'll just basically take the press release, change a word or two and then publish it. <laughs> so right. that's, that's been, a, that's been a scam that you, you can do by accident. I don't even know if it's even a scam. You could send out a legitimate press release and expect the journalist to do it differently. And, and they didn't. So you're saying this is a, a more modern version of the same thing where they're getting people to publish stuff on the internet, on blogs using their name. That's yeah, in a way that's even worse though, because at least in print, it's like, okay, well this is, you know, the, the, uh, Medford Herald version of this, right? Um, whereas if it's if it's on the internet, published in multiple online blogs with almost the same wording over and over and over again, yes. I mean that's 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 even closer to fraud, I think, because it's all it's all on the the same platform essentially. Exactly, it's just a mass distribution system which is like uh, laundering it as though it's local news. Um, yeah, and it seems to me that in if you're doing it that way with websites and 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 so forth, that that's pretty intentional. Yeah, that, it's that, kind of like encroaching fraud. on the last what might have been the last bastion um, for people getting you know kind of impartial news um, because we've basically lost mainstream media has become very biased. Although it's still better than what most people are turning to as an alternative, I would like to point out. <laughs> um, it's very popular to say, you know, mainstream media is biased and so we should just reject it. And like, yes, it is biased, uh, but I find people do not apply the same skepticism to the alternative sources that they turn to, which often do not even do fact checking at all. And uh, but it's like, you know, it's not mainstream news, so it's better. Yeah, no, I, I found it useful it. to try to remind people that there is no such thing as totally unbiased news. Right, there just exactly. isn't, right? And every journalist has a bias. Their bias may um, result in them lying, but actually in the mainstream media, that doesn't happen all that much uh, because one of the biases that normal professional journalists have is against lying. Yeah. Um, but you know, their bias will still show up in other ways. Maybe they, they cover this because they think it's newsworthy, but not that. Um, and you know, their personal political judgments, even if it's not an opinion piece might impact what sorts of facts they include or don't include. Um, and, and that's part of the reason why people who read real news, um, also make sure to balance it out. You know, like if you read the New York times, make sure you also read the wall street journal. It's, it's, you know, you don't have to go to. Russia Today, which is literal state propaganda, right? Um, or, uh, um, you know, one of like Breitbart or some, you know, some some crazy lunatic conspiracy theory peddling nonsense um, because you're skeptical of the mainstream media. I mean, that part of the problem is that we have this stupid term, quote, mainstream media, as if they're all the same. And they're not. You know, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are wildly different perspectives. I suppose people might say they're both pro-business, so if you're anti-business, then you might not like that. But, you know, um, don't be so quick to believe that the conspiracy peddling nonsense that you're finding to replace it is all really that anti-business either. Yeah, I mean, that usually what, what people turn to has even more bias and does not fact check. So it's basically like the difference between 
um, you know, what we were talking about between like uh, older politics where politicians, you know, twist the facts and sort of spin a narrative around true facts uh, versus what we see Trump doing today, which is just complete fabrication. So it's very much that same sort of delineation between mainstream media and uh, the alternative kind of conspiracy driven media. Yeah, well, that's a delineation between lying and bullshitting, right? Yes. But but even even the lying, which is not as bad as the bullshitting, even the lying um, is already worse than what you would expect in a reputable paper most of the time. Right. Uh, that regular, like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, whatever you think about them, they don't intentionally fab. They don't let alone fabricate. They don't intentionally lie, um, but they might exclude things. Um, they might put it in a, a particular rhetorical light. So, you know, there's different levels of of deception that happen as a consequence of bias. And when you're dealing with a reputable newspaper, you're dealing with the lowest level of deception. When you're dealing with a partisan um, propaganda outlet, um, like uh, One America, um, then you're dealing with the highest level of it, where they literally just fabricate stuff. Right. And like whole cloth, just make stories up out of nothing. Fundamentally, like all of these, you know, whether it's in social media or mainstream media or whatever, um, it, it kind of drives back to the profit incentive, which is that they are making their money off of views. And so when that's your your structure, you what you put out there is uh, looking to get as much engagement as possible. It's not looking to, you know, put the most... Uh, the best information out as possible. So that's a very important distinction. It's kind of the driving force between uh, a lot of the partisanship we see in media, a lot of the disinformation we see in media, because it's just trying to get views. And that's why Yang had, you know, policies about like uh, various forms of public financing for journalism through, you know, the journalism fellows and uh, donation matching with public funds and so on. Right. Yeah. Um, before we get into the details of the, the admin reforms, um, did you have a term for this? Because you, you, you use Lawrence Lessig's term of the money primary for the last problem. Um, do you have a, a snappy term for what we're talking about here in terms of um, people laundering? I guess we could call it laundering. <laughs> Propaganda laundering. There, yeah, I just made the term up. That'll work. <laughs> Propaganda laundering, particularly in, in local online news sources. Quote local. Local yeah. online is a, is a bit of a an oxymoron. It's a little weird, but but yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense if it like cover if it's about covering you know a blog that's about covering local events, right? That makes sense. But then all of a sudden, this opinion piece shows up that is written in a very different tone <laughs> under the yeah, same. I mean, it's name. not even like that subtle. I mean, most of them are just like pure partisan stuff all the time. They don't even pay any attention to the local news. They just pretend that they're a local newspaper. They like call themselves a local newspaper. Yeah. Um, and it, it, se it seems to me, but again, before getting into the specific reforms, it, just talking about kind of what are the, what are some of the social causes of these problems? seems to me that that kind of propaganda laundering um, really only works because our country is so balkanized by, by uh, in terms of uh, geography, right? You know, so like if you're going to propaganda launder um, something that is pro Democrats, you're going to have a better chance doing that in a blue state or, a, right. or an urban area. If you're wanting to um, propaganda launder, um, launder propaganda um, uh, the, that's pro Republicans, then you're probably going to succeed at doing that in red states and in um, rural parts of blue states. 
Yeah. And this all feeds into the kind of the, well, what, what is probably the biggest problem that we're having uh, with democracy and with the country in general right now is that it's moving us toward, uh, like, it, it's eroding our consensus on what is factual and what is trustworthy, which is moving us toward this sort of uh, what I called faith-based reasoning, because it's very it's very religious in nature. It's basically like people will choose what they want to believe and any information that disagrees with that, they will call fake news. This is what uh, Trump has popularized, but was going on to some degree before him as well. Um, you know, if you don't like what they say on Fox News, you say that's fake news. If you don't like what they say on CNN, that's fake news. And it's moving us away from constructive argument of any kind and just toward uh, I'm going to believe what I want to believe, and it's dogmatic at this point, and you just cannot convince a person otherwise because any conflicting information is fake news, you know? Yeah, and that is a, that is a separate problem. It's it's related to some of the other problems, but that is a specific challenge that, that we're facing for sure. Faith-based reasoning. All right, are there any more current problems to, to address before we move on yeah, to the reforms? So speaking of... Uh, Area-specific problems. So we have gerrymandering is obviously a huge one that we have to mention. Um, so if anybody's unfamiliar, gerrymandering is basically when you are drawing the lines for districts, which uh, you know each each area will have um, districts that the votes get counted in that district, and then that vote goes on to the state. And so it's kind of a a hierarchical system. Um, so depending on how you split up a state by these districts, you can, you can draw the districts so that, uh, you know, some districts have pretty much nothing but Democrat or Republican people in them. And then most of the districts, uh, depending on which party is drawing the lines, let's say it's Republican because this, you know, more than often happens, uh, in the Republican party, uh, they will draw as many districts as possible where they just barely have the advantage so that the vast majority of the districts in the state will end up being Republican, even if, you know, the majority of the people in the state might be Democrat. So it's just a, a very technical sort of way to skew the vote. And it it's just it's a way of disenfranchising people, essentially. Yeah. And it's important to point out that in, in recent years, um, Republicans have done more of that. Correct. And that's partially because they um, were so successful at taking over uh, state governments uh, during the early Obama years. The the they um, channeled the Tea Party angst about Obama into winning local elections and really, really pushed um, at winning state and um, and and local uh, power. And then have been using that to ensure that they hold on to the power, uh, even when you know Obama's no longer at the top of the ticket. You've got somebody like Joe Biden, say, who is much less um, threatening to certain a certain kind of working class voter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, I, what do you what do you think about that, Alex? By the way, I, I think it's fun to think about. I mean, like, there's a reason. I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I find it fascinating. There's a reason that. Obama chose Biden as his running mate. Um, and there's a reason why, why Biden is, um, 
kind of cozying up to Obama uh, during the primary and then during the general election. He still has he still has Obama going out and, and campaigning for him. But also you see in some debates and stuff, he kind of says, I'm, you know, I'm my own man a little bit. Um, what do you think about all those dynamics and the difference between a certain the way a certain kind, let's say a, a non-college educated white voter would respond to someone like Obama versus someone like Biden and what that means for politics right now? To me, it seems like Obama was, uh, you know, kind of the populist guy and uh, obviously appeals to minorities. And Biden was basically brought on to appeal to the swing states, the Rust Belt, uh, because, you know, he's he grew up there. He's uh, he's very folksy. Um, so I think that was his main appeal to Obama. Yeah, I think you're right. By the way, Obama did use some some populist rhetoric, especially earlier in, oh, yeah. in his um, political career that I always found a little bit unsettling. Um, I'm really happy to see Biden doing none of that. Uh, and of course, Trump ratcheted the populist rhetoric up to a million um, degrees. Uh, in a way that is absolutely horrifying. But B- Obama also expanded executive power in ways that were, right. you know, too authoritarian for my taste uh, as well. And then Trump's ratcheted that up to 10 million degrees. Um, so there's all that. I, th- that said, you know, there are lots of things about Obama that I did like. He wasn't this crazy far left socialist that people make him out to be by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Biden is just somebody who voters in certain parts of the country feel more comfortable with than they yes. did about Obama. That must be why they chose the Harris. I mean, you know, if you if you listen to some 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 of the Yang gang who really are down on on Biden and so forth, they'll say like, oh, why didn't they choose Andrew Yang as his VP? Why did they choose Kamala Harris? And like, it's because um the same reason why Obama chose Biden. You want your VP to balance out your your strengths and weaknesses with different demographics. Obama had, you know, um, college educated liberals and um, and uh, working class blacks like um, on his side. And they needed somebody to get working class whites um, and and people who weren't college educated. And they, so they chose Biden. And now that Biden's at the top of the ticket, they chose Kamala Harris to fill the part, the role that Obama played demographically. It makes perfect sense. It's about winning. I don't understand why the left insists on losing it seems like they're just trying so hard. And I, I don't consider, to be clear, I'm not I'm not saying that Biden is is the left. I'm talking about people to the left of the Democratic Party who are saying, oh, I can't vote because they chose they chose Kamala Harris. And it's like, dude, they're doing it so that they will win. Like, what wh- what do you guys have against winning? <laughs> I mean, as we've talked before, I think it's a it's mostly an issue of they, they just get focused on like uh, single issues and it becomes a purity test and they just lose sight of all the other things that matter uh, because, you know, there's this huge spectrum of things that you want to be paying attention to. And most people, they just don't have the time or inclination to pay attention to all of those things. So they just focus in on one thing, like it might be climate change. It might be UBI. It might be uh, M4A. And they're just like, that's my thing. And that's going to be my purity test. Do you support this exactly as I want it or not? And if you don't, then, you know, fuck off yeah yeah okay so we've added gerrymandering to our list of current problems yes, with uh, democracy yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know to be fair uh both parties have done it but the reason republicans have done it more and more successfully lately is because they were better at winning state elections 
um, in, in recent history. So oh, yeah, and it happened it'll with be interesting Obama's to see, presidency, right? So. Well, with uh, with tr- Trump is tanking the uh, the the popularity of the Republican Party in large swaths of the country. So it'll be interesting to see if he causes them to lose uh, a lot of that state power. And and, 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 he, and to some extent, he, they all, he already has, and it could be getting worse. If, if he does get reelected for another four years, I think it's going to do so much damage to the Republican brand that the party may never recover. Like they, their only hope at that point will be to hold on to power by destroying democracy. Yeah, which is kind of like, uh, you know, at, generally speaking, at the start of Obama, when when Obama won, uh, seems to be the point that the Republican Party kind of gave up on winning the people over and turned to, uh, we're just going to win by uh, manipulating the system. So like up until that point, there was very bipartisan support for democracy. You know, the Voting Rights Act was by was supported bipartisan. Um, they worked very hard on both sides to extend that before it was struck down. Um, but when they saw Obama win, it seems like the GOP uh, leadership in general said, okay, the people are going democratic we need to start uh, manipulating things. So they they brought out this red map program, um, which was a coordinated effort to funnel a bunch of money into these normally uh, largely ignored races in order to get state legislature majorities in uh, mostly battleground states, and then use those to uh, draw the lines for redistricting because it was time for that to happen. And they gerrymandered the hell out of a lot of states so that Democrats basically can't win there. You know, I mean, technically they can, but realistically, not so much. Um, And then we had the other issue, which was the courts like this, the gerrymandering came up before the Supreme Court. And because our courts have become partisan as well, I would argue, uh, they refuse to address it. I mean, the courts are supposed to be there to protect things like democracy. They are supposed to be there to protect our rights as citizens, as outlined in the Constitution. And I would say that they failed to do that in that case. They basically said, uh, if you have a problem with gerrymandering, go and pass a state constitutional amendment. And then it turned out in a lot of states that you really can't, like, I forget which state it was, but in one case, like if you want to do a citizen initiative to modify the state constitution, uh, you have to have everybody who signs it go through a local and national background check. And the police there are not allowed to do national background checks. So it's like literally impossible for citizens to get around their legislature, which is gerrymandered so that they can't elect. It's, It's not representative. So it's very easy to see how in some places people feel like democracy has completely failed them. Yeah. Um, all right. So I look forward to getting to the reforms for that problem because it yeah. is a it is every bit as big of a problem as you're as you're saying. All right. Uh, are there any more current problems that we need to go over first? Uh, probably one more. So um, as you as we got into with the Obama uh Biden issue, there are certain parts of the country that matter far, far more than others um, as far as electoral votes because of the electoral system. 
So basically, because most of the states are strongly either Democrat or Republican leaning, um, what happens with the electoral system is the swing states, which are kind of on the border, uh, they get pandered to in our elections and by our government, which is why, you know, for instance, we are so backward on environmental policy, part of the reason anyway, because like the Rust Belt states have a lot of uh, coal mining, or they did, and natural gas and all of that. Uh, so our candidates have to pander and be, that's why, you know, you see Trump saying, uh, we're going to bring back coal mining. Like, it doesn't make any sense for the most, the vast majority of the country, but in the swing states, there was a lot of coal mining. And so that gets pandered to. So that's a problem with the electoral system. Uh, Yang had a pretty good, Yang had the best solution for that that I've heard, which was, you know, a lot of people just want to get rid of the electoral college. Um, I I can understand why, because it basically disenfranchises the vast majority of the, the country. But what I think would happen if you got rid of it is that instead of everyone but the swing states being ignored, everyone outside of the most densely populated areas would be ignored because now it's just about where do I go to get the most votes? And so you're going to pander to those places instead, right? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Okay, so we've got um, on the problem side, we've got the money primary, Lawrence Lessig's term. Propaganda laundering, my term. <laughs> Faith-based reasoning, uh, gerrymandering, and then, of course, the electoral college and the swing state pandering that happens as a consequence of that. So you started touching on one reform for the swing state pandering. So do you want to finish that that first? Uh, yeah. So uh, the Yang's is the best solution that I've heard, which was to have a proportional electoral votes. So instead of the way it works now, which is that within each state, um, whichever side gets the most votes, the electoral votes all go to that that party. Um, the way that Yang would have it work is uh, you would get a proportion a portion of the electoral vote based on you know what portion of the popular vote you got in the state. And what that would do is essentially make every part of the country now matter because even if you know you go to California, and uh, the vast majority of it's Democrat, there are still uh, very significant pockets of Republicans in that state. I mean, there, there are, in fact, actually, California is the state that has the most Republicans. Exactly. Um, so, you know, candidates would still go, would now go to campaign to those Republican candidates if they're in, in the Republican Party or in the Democratic Party, um, and because they are now a a significant voting block that they can get, even if they don't get, you know, the rest of California. Right. Yeah. And what, what something else that that would mean is that if you are a Republican in California, right, or uh, a Democrat in, I was going to say Texas, but Texas is increasingly purple. Right. <laughs> um, if you know, if you're a Republican in a blue state or a Democrat in a red state right now, it's pretty easy to feel like your vote, at least at the national level, doesn't matter, right? Absolutely. Certainly for yeah. president, it doesn't matter, right? But if you had this system that Yang is proposing, not only would every state matter, but every vote would matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it basically makes, it basically means that government is now going to care about issues all over the country instead of mostly just caring about the swing state issues, right? And that's what you want. You want government to represent everyone in the country as much as possible. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've been thinking about the Electoral College and what people complain about because, you know, they'll, they'll, Trump won the uh, 2016 election um, by a few thousand votes in three states despite ha- getting millions fewer votes uh, total, right? Um, and one way of looking at that is, well, yeah, but majorities of people in those three you know, states um, chose Trump. Another way of looking at it is because those three states were so close, hence it only came down to a few thousand votes total between the three of them, which is a tiny amount of votes in comparison to three million by which Biden, or I'm sorry, by which Clinton won the popular vote, right? right? Because it was just these tiny little margins in those three states, what that means is almost half of the people in, in those three states voted along with the vast majority of Americans mm-hmm. against Donald Trump, right? And so it's also disenfranchising people in those states. So um, I guess the, basically to address all the other issues, uh, the hope that we have- Oh wait, I'm sorry, before we move on, before we move on from the electoral college thing, I just want to point out that Yang's, uh, Yang's not the only person who's proposed electoral, um, and and there are a couple of states that actually do uh, distribute them um, proportionally already, which is great. We need more. Um, but you know, Yang's uh, advocating that is distinct from some other electoral college reforms where people are advocating that states and many states have signed um, an agreement that once there are enough states mm-hmm. have signed this to pass all of their electoral votes onto the winner of the popular vote, then it'll kick in. And that's that's intended to com- essentially get around the entire electoral college and is very right. different in nature from the proportional plan. Yes. Oh, and one more thing that we forgot was uh, voting reform, you know, like ranked choice voting, uh, star voting instead of the, I forget the term for the way that we do it now. Uh, uh, first past the post. Yeah, that, that that's a, that's one term people use. I mean, yeah, yeah, right now we have basically a two party system because it's first past the post. Yeah. So we can our add that to our list of current problems. And the solution for that one is, uh, yeah, and the solution for that one is, is ranked choice voting. You want to talk about that yeah. for a second? Um, yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're probably all pretty familiar with that. Uh, there is some de, some argument between like ranked choice voting or star voting. Uh, star voting seems to be the superior option, but I think it's that ranked choice voting is getting pushed because uh, that that's just what most people know about. That's what's uh, got the momentum behind it at the moment. We've talked about ranked choice voting on this podcast many times, but nobody has really talked about star voting yet. So if you want to explain the difference to our listeners, I'm sure it's new to some of them. Sure. Um, it's basically just score voting. So um, you would give a score, you know, it might be between one and 10 or one and 100 uh, to each of the candidates so that you can very uh, minutely, you know, give your preference, your relative preferences. Um, so, you know, I might give a 10 to Yang and an eight to Biden or whatever, um, and one to Trump. <laughs> um, and it's just, it just makes it, a. I I mean, we'd have to get into the really into the weeds as to why, uh, people say that it's better than ranked choice voting, but essentially in some circumstances, ranked choice voting still can, uh, create a situation where you feel that you have to strategically vote and with score voting that doesn't happen as much. Right. And really quickly with ranked choice voting, just for anybody listening who doesn't happen to know what it is, I'm sure most of our listeners do. Uh, you want to explain that one? Yeah. So ranked choice voting is basically just uh, you go through all the candidates. You say, this is my first choice candidate. This is my second choice candidate and so on and so on. 
um, until you've ranked them all. And if you're, and then when the votes get counted, um, the lowest, the person with the least votes gets knocked out and all of their vote, all of the, the first choice votes they had get distributed uh, to people's second choice votes. And then the next candidate gets knocked out until there's, uh, essentially until there's two candidates left. So everybody's vote gets counted no matter who they voted for. Um, you just get to select your preferences. Yeah. And I, I have to say, um, I notice a problem with both of these. I, I do, I do support, uh, ranked choice voting. And I think I prefer ranked choice voting over star voting, although I understand why, why, uh, you know, mathematically speaking, I think star voting is, is, a, a better system. But when you think about behavior of human beings who are not all, um, super informed, uh, you know, it's, we start to wonder like, okay, what, what percentage do you give to the five candidates on the ballot who you know nothing about, right? Do you give them 0% because you don't know anything about them? Do you think of like, ah, oh, 50%, I'll just do 50% for the ones I know nothing about and 10% for the ones I hate and a hundred percent for the ones who I love, right? Um, it, it starts to, it starts to get a little messy. I, I, I think it might be a mistake to, to let regular people, play with numbers in those ways because I don't I don't think it would in practice represent their actual preference because they probably don't know about most of the third party candidates. And so in a, in a weird way I think it would actually result in third party candidates doing way 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 better than they would deserve in an actually fair um multi-party system. What do you think about that? Uh well to be fair there still would be strategic voting going on with score voting. Um I mean people you know would would not be giving the exact score that exactly corresponds to, you know, their preference for each candidate. They would, you know, if, for instance, if there were, if there were only two candidates, um, let's say it was Yang versus Biden. Uh, and I really, really like, I prefer Yang, but you know, Biden's not the devil. Um, if I were being honest about my scoring, I'd probably give Yang like, 100 and Biden like uh, 50 or something. Uh, but in practice, I would give Yang 100 and Biden zero if it was just between the two of them. But there's going to be some some strategic voting in any system. The trials that they've run um, have just shown that star that happens a little bit less with star voting than ranked choice voting. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I haven't studied that extensively. So I can't speak. Yeah, I can. I can understand why. As I said, I think mathematically it makes sense, and and in practice, I think it probably would result in less strategic voting. But I'm also not sure that it's necessarily better representative representative of people's preferences for them to be less strategic. I mean, there's a reason people are strategic, and it's because you want to do what you think is going to result in the most likely. Um, outcome that you're going to be most happy with. Um, yeah. No, pl plus ranked choice voting is just simpler. Although of course, I guess, like, as I started to say in ranked choice voting, you do have the same problem where it's like, okay, so five out of the seven candidates, you know, nothing about what order do you put the other five in? <laughs> do you just have a one and a two? Do you feel like you then just kind of have to randomly roll the dice and write three, four, five, six and seven and seven without really thinking right. about it? Would it inspire some people to do more research? Sure. Right. But I, 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 I do wonder sometimes that some of these some of these ideas, uh, while I think they're great to talk about and I, I support to, to one extent or another, um, we don't want to 
put put our blinders on to the possible negative side effects of that way of thinking. Plus, of course, in um, a multi-party system as as exists uh, in in parliamentary democracies in Western Europe, for example, um, the, the the parties still have to build coalitions to get to a majority anyway, right? So in practice, you still end up really de facto being part of one of two teams. It's just a, a, a necessary evil of the democratic process. Yeah, I mean, it just uh, makes it more possible. It makes it more uh, like viable for third parties and independents to win uh, because, you know, right now there's no real way for them to get support as far as voting because people always feel pressured to vote for one of the front runners or who are who are thought of as the front runners like yeah even of course if, and, and know, that would also result that would also result in you know the 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 odds that one of the two most dominant parties would be supplanted by a different party mm-hmm. which has happened a couple times throughout u.s history but is pretty rare um you know that increases the odds of that sort of thing happening uh that that that'll, that'll make sense to me i i, I like I, as i said everything else being equal i i support ranked choice voting but I, I, I think that it's more interesting to talk about the possible downsides of things. And if we are going to support something, I think it's important to go into it with a you know, clear vision about what we're doing. Yeah, sure. And we could probably do a whole episode on, <laughs> on voting reform itself. Um, but speaking of, uh, since you've talked about, you know, since we're talking about multi-parties, um, one, one thing that I want to make clear about uh, gerrymandering and other sort of vote rigging is that it's not just a problem for the party that's being suppressed. Um, So like when you have a gerrymandered state that's only being essentially only being represented by one party um, and they're suppressing the ability of the other party to ever challenge them, that is how you end up with one party countries like China, North Korea, these authoritarian countries that we don't want to be a part of, that's how you get there is by essentially removing the ability of any other party to challenge one of them. And that is what's going on with gerrymandering. Yeah. And, and as, as you said, it's actually bad for the party itself too. Yes. Because, because what happens then is you, you have candidates who will just kind of, if, so if, if it's the Republican party, you have candidates in the primary who will just say like, well, I don't have to worry about, mm-hmm. Um, offending um, Democratic voters all that much, or at all. Um, I don't really need to think about offending independents all that much. Um, definitely don't need to think about offending Democrats. And so in the Republican mm-hmm. primary, which is the only primary that matters, and the same thing happens in blue states, um, in deep blue states as well, um, you know, so if you're AOC in a deep blue state, you can just pander and pander and pander to the far left um, right. and win the primary because you don't, you're not, you're not worried about the fact that the Democrat will automatically de facto win the general election. But we're starting to see that that there are uh, points of diminishing returns on that. And at some point, you end up getting people in there who are unqualified ideologues whose ideas mm-hmm. are too radical, um, and they do end up losing. And then what used to be a deeply red – this is happening with Republicans a lot right now as, as Trumpism is – as becoming more popular with the Republican base and also simultaneously alienating everybody else, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I could see a point of diminishing returns happening with Democrats too, where sure, you might be able to run a, a socialist at a few places, but I don't think it's going to work in every single supposedly safe Democratic district throughout the country if they go down that road. I think that could be very bad for the party. Yeah, it starts with, I don't care about what the other party thinks. I don't care about representing them. And eventually, when they cement enough power, it's I don't even care about my own party's voters. 
because there's no way that I'm ever going to be taken out of power. And oh, that's so a that key point. point. Yeah, yeah. Could, could you say that again? I think that's worth restating. That's that's so huge. Yeah. So when you have a one party state, it's not just the other party that gets disenfranchised. That's how it starts. But eventually everyone is disenfranchised. Everyone loses representation in government. And that is when you have a totalitarian state. Right. Because they start taking even voters in their own party for granted. Correct. And that's the inevitable outcome when you allow this sort of uh, one party rule. So what is the solution, proposed solution to gerrymandering specifically? Yes. So, um, the solution to a lot of these things is actually very close at hand for us right now, which a lot of people overlook or uh, underestimate, which is that the Democrats have had a bill in the House. They passed passed it through the House. It's been sitting on McConnell's desk for four years called H.R. 1, which is a democracy reform bill. It has all sorts of reforms in it. Um, It's got like the president and vice president need to submit 10 years of tax returns. That's a fun one. Wonder where that came from. Uh, There's a required code of of ethics, sorry, for federal judges. There's prohibiting Congress people from serving on for-profit boards, campaign funding, transparency rules, election security, uh, establishing a democratic commission in Congress. But the most important two are campaign finance reform and establishing independent nonpartisan redistricting commissions in every state. So what that means is banning gerrymandering and establishing uh, public campaign finance means, in this case, whenever a common American donates a small amount of money, the government would amplify that donation by about six times. Um, So the effect of that is to subvert what uh, Lessig calls the money primary, because now you are making it possible for the people, the money that uh, politicians are getting from everyday Americans to collectively outweigh the money that they can get from special interests. And that basically makes politicians loyal to the people instead of those special interests, which means that all of the things all of the policies that have broad popular support right now, uh, such as you know banning banning gerrymandering or universal health care or now universal basic income, suddenly become meaningful to politicians in power because now they want to please the actual voters instead of just pleasing the people who are giving them the most money, which cur- currently is not the voters. Yeah, one one um, one possible downside of that, and again, I'm saying this in the, in the context of I support Yang's democracy dollars idea, uh, mainly as you said, as a way of kind of balancing out the undue influence of special interests. Um, but you know, there there is also this one possible downside, which already exists. It's important to say, just not with um, democracy dollars, with just regular normal dollars, um, and that is that somebody who is supposed to be representing the constituents of their local district suddenly gets a bunch of money flood, flooded in from outside, um, and and now there's a serious conflict of interest. Where are they representing, you know, the popular opinion of the American people as a whole instead of their constituents, which is actually what they're supposed to be doing in in uh, Congress. Yeah, that's possible. But I mean, uh, it's a separate issue because it always that already happens now. I mean, you look at uh, the fundraising um, for McGrath in Kentucky, like she got money from all over the country, tons of it. It, it didn't come from Kentuckians. Um, so 
and that also happens with special interests. You know, you get special interests from all over the country donating to local races if they have a special if they they have an interest in that. Yeah, 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 and well, and 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 in the case of running against McConnell, I mean, at McConnell's position um, has so he has so much power that goes beyond just representing his yeah. local constituents that I, I think you could even make a strong case that the rest of America has a, a, an interest and therefore a right in influencing whether or not he remains in power. So that sure. that that sort of thing could actually motivate people to, in addition to representing their local districts, at a minimum, don't, you know, piss off the the rest of America um, by, you know, being a, a, a sleazy, horrible person. <laughs> right. <laughs> to pull my punches. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I think that's a good response. It happens already. Um, and the real purpose of the democracy dollars is to is to uh, balance the undue influence of special interests by giving regular Americans. And and frankly, in most congressional races, if if anybody's going to give their democracy dollars, um, it's going to come from people in those in those in those races. It's it's relatively rare that a a local congressional race becomes of of public interest. And you could almost argue, as in the case of McConnell, that. By the time it does, then by interest, that person's probably doing something wrong. Correct. Yeah. And McConnell is a good example of, uh, you know, kind of how our system, one one of the ways in which our system has gone horribly wrong. I mean, he's basically, people, for all, for all intents and purposes, McConnell is the Senate now. Uh, you know, you, when you look at the stimulus talks, it's not... Uh, talks going on with all of the Congress, uh, all of the people in the House, all the people in the Senate. It's just Pelosi, McConnell, and Trump. Those are the only three people that matter. Whatever they decide, the rest are almost certainly going to vote with them. And right, because they're not, not allowing it to come up for a vote. McConnell won't allow it to come up for a vote yeah. in the Senate. And Pelosi does the same thing, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is something that is talked about extensively on a, a recent Yang Speaks episode all about this, about, uh, you know, how the ability for Congress people to bring up amendments to a bill has been taken away. And at this point, uh, basically, each side won't even won't even hear the bills of the other side. They won't even vote on them. Um, so it's, it's it's completely shut down all progress in Congress. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. OK, so we talked quite a bit about campaign finance and democracy dollars. Um, could you say a little bit more about the independent redistricting commissions? How would that work? Um, I haven't looked into that in a lot of depth. Um, the idea is just basically that, you know, it would be taken out of the legislature's hands. There would be a separate entity. Um, it, I don't know. It might be, uh, you know, drawn from the communities that are are being district. Uh, having the lines drawn for, uh, and efforts would be taken to make sure that they're nonpartisan. It, it seems to me you could just have like a geometric districting, uh, sort of system where, you know, you just split it as kind of a grid to avoid any potential bias, but I'm sure there are issues with that as well. But the point is that it would be in one way or another taken out of the hands, uh, taken, taking away the ability for one party or the other to, bias it in their favor. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a number of different proposals about how to make it um, nonpartisan. Um, right. And so, yeah, the, my understanding is that the commission would be tasked with going through the different pro ways of doing it, trying them out, 
um, and and keep making sure that um, that gerry- that districts are not being gerrymandered going forward. So commission would would not have its hands tied. It would be a nonpartisan organization that exists for the sole purpose of ensuring that the district drawing remains nonpartisan. Yeah, HR one um, basically. As just you said, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about various ways of doing that, and so mm-hmm. I would expect them to discuss them, debate them, uh, yeah. try them out, see what works. If it's not working, try something else. That sort of thing. Yeah, to be clear, my understanding of HR one is that it just requires that each state have an independent nonpartisan redistricting commission, not that they do it in any specific way. Um, basically, anything would be better than what we have now, which is pretty much the party in power can draw it however they want. Yeah, yeah, no, that seems like an improvement to me. All right, so the two that we haven't touched on specifically yet were the propaganda laundering and the faith-based reasoning. And it seems to me that those are two that are the hardest to have a systemic solution to because they're basically just a consequence of regular people being dupable. Um, What are are some specific reforms to that? I know Yang had some. Uh, So I I guess in in whichever order, propaganda laundering and faith-based reasoning. I mean, they're pretty closely tied. Um, I think they... Uh, yeah, yeah, they are. That's true, because the reason people are susceptible to propaganda laundering right. is their faith-based reasoning. And it's it's very much related to a loss of trust in mainstream media, I would say. And that has come about from a series of, of issues, uh, like we lost a lot of uh, regulations on news reporting uh, back in the 80s, I believe. There used to be, you know, regulations on like uh, fair reporting. So you had to give like a fair amount of time to either side of an issue. If you like invoke some, if you criticize somebody in the, in the public, you had to let them come on and respond. Um, You had to do all sorts of fact checking and, you know, various things. Um, And those all got repealed and that has not been helping (laughs) the issue. Um, I would say the, the most, the biggest issue probably is just that the profit incentives um, being driven to put out content that will get the most engagement uh, does not lead to good ends, as we've seen with social media algorithms, where it just you know it usually ends up feeding uh, hateful partisan stuff to people because that gets the biggest reaction, um, which gets the most views on ads or whatever. Uh, so Yang's proposal for that, which has its own issues, to be fair. Um, would be establishing some sort of uh, a group of journalists drawn from across the country that would kind of uh, vet organizations in the media and provide public funding for them as a public good so that they would not have a profit incentive. Their only incentive would be to you know, put out uh, good information. And there's all sorts of, you know, that obviously has the risk of uh, government-run media, where you basically, it turns into a propaganda machine for the government. Um, So you would have to put all sorts of safeguards on that, like uh, maybe, you know, time horizons on changing the funding so that uh, politicians can't just be extorting the media to be like, say what I want, or I'm going to take your funding away. You know, maybe you can't change funding for many years in advance. So by the time that change would take place, that politician wouldn't even be in power anymore. There's all sorts of things you could do. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I have the the same um, possible concerns about it. I mean, really, the, the my understanding, and we did an episode on the local journalism fund way back in the day uh, I, I, with Corey, my my old co-host, who still comes on occasionally um, as a guest co-host. Um, yeah, but like my my understanding of that, as we went through it detail by detail, was that Yang had taken a lot of the stuff into consideration, and the local journalism fund was really mainly just about ensuring that local newspapers don't die and that they have a chance of coming back and that people still have them as an option um, for getting for getting information. Um, and and I, I think that when the, the only um, f- lens through which people think about politics is um, the national political subjects, then it, that leads to polarization and um, mm-hmm. it makes everything more toxic because you're seeing everything through this us versus them national lens, whereas in local politics, people tend to be a little bit more issue driven. They tend to be a little bit more pragmatic and and maybe you're dealing with, you know, a primary and in your own party and, and all, all of this fun stuff. So I think I think it would just help to kind of de-radicalize people to just remember that local issues matter, too, um, and 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 for them to be informed about what's going on locally so that they're so there isn't corruption locally. Um, so having a kind of fair fund for keeping local journalism alive um, uh, on the national level, uh, you know, I think it would actually be more risky if the public funding of the local paper came from the local, uh, the local fund, because then the politician who has the most interest in the coverage of local issues um, would be the one who could just, you know, uh, pull the funding. Um, so yeah, I, I think we. I'm okay with it as long as it's decentralized. You know, part of the reason that right. Trump tries to to stack the courts and also the GOP to, to gerrymander districts and stuff is because the whole, the whole point is if you have control of every branch of government and, and every state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, you don't. You know, you're no longer accountable to the, anybody. Correct. Um, so I, I'm I'm okay with uh, local journalism fund as long as it's decentralized. Um, you want to make sure that it's not the only way that people are getting funding. Um, you want it to be in addition to uh, private mm-hmm. journalism, not instead of it. That's where you really get into trouble. Is you get places like Russia, where even the ostensibly private um, media really works for the government. That's that's where that's the real danger. You, it, there's no real harm. I mean, we have NPR right now, right? But that doesn't stop people from watching Fox News or CNN. Yeah, and to be clear, uh, Yang had two separate policies. There was the journalism fellowship, and then there was the local journalism fund. Um, so the the fellowship was kind of more focused on like national and uh, establishing standards for uh, news reporting, and the local journalism fund was more about uh, just funding local journalism. I believe mostly through like donation matching. Yeah, yeah, um, you're right. He addressed both of those issues, and then as far as the faith based reasoning goes. Um, I don't think there is a systemic solution to that problem. As you said, they're kind of related because people will always be susceptible to it. But if you can, you know, reestablish some some standards for journalism yeah. and give people more options, um, then that hopefully would help to reduce the problem. The other thing, and this may be because there isn't a, I, I don't know if you agree with this, Alex, but it, it's very popular on on the left, especially people who consider themselves socialists and communists, to say like there never is such a thing as a uh, a personal solution to a systemic problem. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with that because I think systems are just made up of a bunch of individuals and that w- if you can successfully change the way individuals think, 
um, then that adds up to a systemic solution, right? So like if you, you know, not that long ago, a vast majority of Americans opposed same-sex marriage. Back in the day, a vast majority um, of Americans um, were at least willing to tolerate slavery. You know, there's there, there have been times when changing minds one at a time does result in systemic change. And so I, I think that people who focus only on government solutions to problems overlook the importance of just influencing their fellow Americans, which frankly is the way democracy is actually supposed to work. It's not about, you know, paternalistic government top down. We're going to solve all your problems for you, whether you want it or not. It's about like, hey, let's persuade our fellow Americans so we can get a majority of people to back this or that idea. Yeah, I mean, there, there's obviously a balance. So um, like in the case of what we're talking about with journalism, I there's a lot of personal responsibility there in like uh being critical of what you're consuming, obviously. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it would be realistic to just expect that we can, uh, you know, discard trust in mainstream media, for example, and just expect everybody to have the um, time and ability to become their own investigative journalist and dig into everything, every fact that uh, pops up on their feed and, uh, you know, we we don't have we we can't all be investigative journalists basically we that's why we have people who do that profession and it's important that we have trustworthy sources of that because we just we need a we need to um have have a consensus basis for people um for at least basic facts you know yeah, yeah. All right. So we've got the, the the problem of the money primary with the solution of democracy dollars and other campaign finance reform things, propaganda laundering and faith based reasoning for which we have improved journalistic standards and uh, local journalism funding. Um, then you have the problem of gerrymandering for which we have the independent uh, redistricting commissions. Um, electoral swing pandering um, where, where proportional electoral votes um, could resolve that. That's important to point out that that's the one that a bill in Congress can't solve. That's a, a, going to be a, a, a bigger fight. Um, and then, of course, uh, first pass the post voting and rank choice and star voting, which, again, um, HR1 also can't can't address that. Those two things, those last two things have to be addressed on a state by state basis. All right. And now moving into the conclusion, you said you wanted to talk about what to expect um, in this particular election. So people I, I looked um, as of yesterday, something like we had 42 percent of the 2016 total had already voted. So um, a lot more people are voting early. Uh, folks are saying that that means that it's going to be a much bigger turnout. I wouldn't be surprised if it is a bigger turnout, but I also wouldn't be surprised if that's just because, you know, more people can vote early and, and given the pandemic, people are choosing to vote early. Uh, so I wouldn't assume that it's going to be a huge turnout based on that. It does, however, mean that, um, you know, I, I guess, I guess you could say that the more people who vote earlier, the better that is for Joe Biden, because, Presumably, since Trump has brainwashed his followers to not trust mail-in voting, um, although I've, then he turns around and tells people in certain states to go vote by mail anyway because right. he's deeply absentee ballot, very different, very different. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, so yeah, so like you know, the if the number of people who vote day of drastically outnumbers the number of people who voted early, that's probably good for Trump. Um, and so the more people who vote early, the better it is for Biden. I wish like if that number was 60 or 70 percent of the total last time around, that would be far better. But 42 percent isn't bad. So what, what should we expect, Alex? Yeah. So uh, 
thank you for that summary of everything we talked about. That was excellent. Um, so what I what I think people need to be clear on as far as the election is the the potential threats that we might face to democracy in the election. Uh, so the situation we have now is that obviously, as you said, we've got far more mail-in voting going on than ever before. Uh, the vast majority of Democrats are voting by mail, while a far, far smaller percentage of Republicans are going to be voting by mail. And what that means is that on election day, uh, because most states do not allow the counting of mail ballots until the beginning of election day, what you're going to see is that Trump is going to be ahead in a lot of states on election day because the vet and the there's more Republicans voting on that day than Democrats. And then over the course of some weeks, uh, the mail-in ballots are going to be counted and it's going to push it more toward Biden. And what we're going to almost certainly see, because he has already done this in Florida before, is Trump is going to try and declare victory on election day and say, forget about the mail-in ballots. They're all fraudulent anyway. Let's just not, let's just discard them. And that's that's literally what he said in the Florida election uh, when it started to swing against the Republican governors governor candidates. Um, so I think we're definitely going to see that again in the presidential election. And his ultimate goal here, um, as far as what we need to be uh, afraid of is that he's going to attempt to bypass the people's vote in that manner. He's going to attempt to uh, ignore all of the mail-in votes, and he's going to attempt to fraudulently declare victory. And the way that he could actually achieve that uh, is by getting the state legislatures to appoint their own electors, to select their own electors for Trump even in states where the popular vote is for Biden. Um, and it gets yeah, can into, you can you explain that process? As yeah. That's a little bit um, op opaque. So what normally happens is that within each state, uh, the people will vote for Trump or Biden, and the whichever, uh, whichever gets the most votes, the governor will select the electors for that candidate, and those electors will cast their vote for their candidate to the Congress, the federal Congress, that is. And then Congress counts up those votes, and whoever has 270 or more, that's the winner. Now, there is the very rare possibility that neither candidate gets to 270, in which case you start to get into the very questionably democratic practice of Congress deciding who wins. And what happens there is the House will vote on who the president is going to be, and the Senate will vote on who the vice president is going to be. Very strange process. Um, like the House doesn't even vote for, you don't vote by representatives, you vote by state delegations. So like whichever, uh, however, whichever party has the most uh, power in that state, basically, 
would vote in that in that way. So, right. That's a key point because yes. lots of people don't understand. They say, oh, wouldn't that be good for the Biden then? Uh, no, it wouldn't, because even though Democrats have more representatives in Congress, um, Republicans have a majority in more states. Yeah, 26 to 24 uh, right now. But it is worth pointing out that when this vote takes place, it would be with a new Congress, the, the one that's being voted in. So it could shift, um, but and it could be a, a Democratic Senate when it, when this happens, which is why it's very important that we uh, try and win as many congressional seats as possible, especially in the Senate, because even if none of this happens, uh, there's going to be no progress for the next four to eight years if the legislative branches are split, as much as I hate to say that, because ideally, if democracy is working as it should, we should want you know representation for both parties in Congress to provide a balance. But as it is working right now, nothing gets done because of what we talked about with McConnell and Pelosi and uh, just not not voting, not amending. Uh, we can't afford that in the crisis that we're in right now with the economy and everything else and with democracy and with journalism and all of that stuff. We need to make changes. We need to make reforms. Um, so we really honestly need a Democratic Senate and Congress uh, House right now. Yeah, yeah, that? and um, there's a a, 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 a conservative with a small c um, tradition of basically ensuring that no one party is able to control every branch of government. Uh, right. You saw a lot of people doing that. Um, people were um, interviewed um, in the news during the 2016 election, and you saw people saying, "I'm a Republican." Um, and I can't vote for Donald Trump because he's not a real conservative and he's a sleazeball and blah, 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 blah. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but I'm going to vote for Republicans in in Congress mm-hmm. um, and in order to ensure that she you know, has has to work with the other side. I don't want to give the Democrats too much power. Right. And so you could make the, the case that if you are, um, you know, a Republican who doesn't like Donald Trump, you're going to vote for Joe Biden. Maybe you should vote for Republicans in Congress. The only the only thing to keep to take into account there is because you are dealing with such a deeply authoritarian and anti-democratic man yes. in Donald Trump and with a Republican Party that instead of standing up to their leader is bending over for him, um, you should seriously consider just this one time um, voting a straight Democratic ticket. So I voted a straight Democratic ticket um, for the first time ever in my life. And I would not be doing that if Republicans had stood up to Trump. I recently tweeted out like literally the only thing I will not seriously, I will, I will, no matter what else your positions are, the only thing right now that a Republican needs to do to get my vote is to stand up to Trump. That's it. That's where I'm at. And and the reason for that is, is because ordinarily you would want to divide the power. You would want, you know, Congress to be in one party and um, and Biden in the White House in order to get Trump out, but also ensure that, you know, the Democrats don't just have a free for all to do whatever they want from a conservative perspective. I understand not all of my listeners are right. But in this one case, that doesn't apply because unfortunately you are dealing with a GOP that is uh, is putting party over country and is putting our very democracy in in danger as a consequence of that. So yes, you're right. Trump is going to try to steal the election, which is why I voted for Democrats. Yeah. And um, on top of just the, well, so as you said, the the GOP has kind of uh, since Obama turned to anti-democratic and now to 
straight up fascism, authoritarianism. Um, so obviously, we need to you know send a very very strong message to the Democrat to the Republican Party that that is not acceptable. They need to lose very hard so that they will reform the party to actually go back to democratic values, go back to trying to win the people's votes instead of suppress them. And uh, in addition to that, this trend toward authoritarianism has been happening, I would say, because of the economy failing people, because of journalism failing people, because of democracy failing the people. And I would say that within the next four years, probably, if we do not severely address those three uh, issues, then I think this authoritarianism is going to continue in America, and we will end up with another Trump, even if Biden wins this time. So I think we need a united Congress focused on addressing these issues, which the Democrats, at least on democracy reform, definitely are committed to. It seems that they're moving in the direction of addressing some of the economic issues. They're, uh, you know, Biden's policies kind of moving uh, toward UBI, that sort of thing. Um, and journalistic reform, I don't really know how much that's on the radar, but we can at least get democracy reform. That'll be a big step. That's a necessary step that we absolutely vitally need. Yeah. Um and and I think it's important to point out that if a conservative like myself can vote a straight democratic ticket in order to save democracy, then, you know, anybody who's left of the Democratic Party who is thinking about not voting for Biden or okay. even just thinking about not voting Democrat um, for the House and the Senate, um, you know, if they're thinking about writing in a third, uh, writing, you know, writing somebody in or voting third party um, at any level there, um, then they are as complicit in the destruction of democracy as Donald Trump's voters are. And to be clear, um, Biden actually has a very strong uh, history on public campaign finance. He's been pushing for it for a really long time. Uh, McConnell and to, uh, to some degree, the GOP in general have been very much opposed to it. So if you want to get democracy reform, we need a Democratic Congress and preferably a Democratic president as well. Yeah. Um, and and as, as I think we did a good job going over the possible downsides of some of the proposed reforms, because utopia is not mm -hmm. pop, it's not pop, it's not a reality. You can't make a utopia no matter how much you might want to. Right. right. There are always going to be new problems to solve. Um, but the point is you weigh the pros and cons and you look at the, the current state of affairs and you try to improve things. Um, where and how you can. I support progress. I just don't support, you know, radical ideas that are intended to cause progress that then result in regress because they don't, you know, because they don't take the possible negative side effects into account. So I, I, I think we did a good job talking about the very real possible negative side effects of some of these things. Uh, and nevertheless, um, you know, uh, going ahead and saying we need, we need to do some reforms because clearly uh, we, these problems are big enough that we can't just ignore them. Yeah, voting, you know, voting Democratic this time does not mean you're a DNC loyalist. It just means right now the conditions are such that this is the best thing for the country. And uh, it may be very different, you know, eight years in the future. Uh, hopefully it will be because the Republican, Republican Party would have reformed itself and they may be a viable option again. I would love. For yeah, that that's a true. that's a really that's a really key point, Alex. Um, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think that the Republicans 
would would have to say like, look, this strategy of doubling and tripling down on pandering only to the base and alienating independence, um, alienating liberal Republicans, which we are a, a, a well, I'm not even a Republican anymore as a consequence of it, right? But like, I could right. go back; they could welcome me back mm-hmm. if, for example, they moderated on social issues and they stopped being such theocratic, racist, sexist, homophobic bigots, right? That's how they're alienating economically right wing people yeah. in the civilized parts of the country, frankly, right? They would they could win California and New York if they just stopped taxing the hell out of the middle class and, uh, and, and you know, pushing forward these authoritarian, theocratic, racist, sexist, homophobic agenda on social issues, um, right? I, it, and also, frankly, it would be good for them um, in terms of being pro-capitalist, too, because right now they're dependent, because they've alienated all the capitalists in the educated parts of the world, they're dependent on these deindustrializing flyover states where the vast majority of the population is practically poor, right? How can you be the party of capitalism when all your voters are living in trailers? I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, it would be funny if this was a satire, but right. because it's real life, it's fucking terrifying. There's a lot of that going on. And yeah, I, I, even even uh, as far as fiscal conservatism, the GOP has not really represented that for quite some time. Excuse me. Um, I would I would say it's, well, yeah, certainly not fiscal responsibility. I mean, the, right. the yeah, the, the last president to balance the budget was Bill Clinton. Correct. I, I would say that at this point, the GOP has basically become the antithesis of everything they claim to be. I mean, they're... <laughs> That's really sad. It's 100% true. It yeah. really is. They, they, are, they are the National Socialist Party is what they are now. They're, they're a Nazi party. Um, so anyway, getting back to the election. Um, so that... Even if Biden did literally, even if you were voting for him for literally no other purpose than to pass H.R. 1, that would literally be enough. That's a very good reason to vote for him because it would be such a fundamental change. It would be such it would completely reshape uh, the power structure of our government to focus on the people and to be concerned with the people's issues. So. Yeah, and not not in a not in a creepy, cynical, populist, pandering kind of rhetorical way, right. but like just in a, a functional pure, like rational, pragmatic reform way. Yeah, this makes possible everything else that we want. Um, All right, so- well said, and and that and that makes it makes possible whatever you want, no matter what it is, whether you're on the left or the right. Um, yeah. None of us win if we lose our freedom. Yeah, Alex, and I know that you've uh, you've been looking into some more of the details, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand fully because it is so incredibly complicated. And and so you know, we're talking about systems that are built into the government that were designed to essentially make sure that the government kept functioning in a crisis. Um, and and we're dealing with a situation where Trump is intentionally manufacturing multiple crises so that he can try to steal the election by. Uh, unfairly influencing the processes. Uh, so yeah, can you get, talk us through the rest of the details? I know you've got a lot you want to say. Yeah. So, um, we, so we discussed how it's supposed to go, which is that the electors are supposed to represent the people's vote in the state. So the threat that we want to watch out for in this election, where it would become a coup situation is if the state legislatures start to cast their electors for uh, the candidate that did not win the popular vote in the state. 
And that is not actually prevented by any law, unfortunately. It's just basically a norm that we have gone with. But what could happen is that Trump could seek to undermine in various ways people's uh, faith in the outcome of the ballot count or to just delay the ballot count until so that not all the all the votes can be counted. And if he succeeds in doing that, then he could convince the uh, certain re Republican slate state legislatures to ignore the people's vote and just uh, select electors to vote the way they want, which would be for Trump. Yeah, and 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 to legitimize it by claiming that you can't trust the mail-in vote anyway. Yes. Um, so what we so his goal here would be threefold in his actions. It would be to get as many Democrat votes disqualified as possible, um, to create chaos and doubt in the results, and to delay the count. So the the delay former, the count, or possibly even get some um, some percentage of mail-in votes tossed out too. Right, right, right. That was the first one. So the former can help him win. Uh, the getting votes disqualified can help him win, and the latter two, which would be causing chaos and delaying the count would be for the purpose of uh, making an excuse for the Republican legislators to uh, send their electors to him. And I do want to be clear, uh, for one thing, that it is possible that Trump will just legitimately win the electoral count. I don't want to pretend that that's, that's not possible and that the only uh, viable, the only legitimate outcome would be a Biden win, because that's that's a dictatorial position. That's what Trump is saying. I'm not <laughs> I was saying about that to say about that, that then you'd be lowering yourself to Trump's level. Exactly. So Trump's, Trump's Trump's basically saying that um, if he doesn't win, that it was because it was rigged. Well, not basically. Right. I guarantee. Like I absolutely guarantee you, I would bet all of my assets that if Biden wins, Trump will say multiple times in public that it's because it was rigged. Oh God, yeah. Um, so I, meanwhile, he's the one who's actually trying to rig it. Right. So just to be clear, this uh, my referring to this as a coup would only apply in the case that the uh, state legislatures are bypassing the people's vote and they are trying to ignore the vote and you know elect Trump against the people's will. So in that situation, um, what what we're going to see most likely some or all of these uh, these measures to try and facilitate that would be for the Trump and the GOP to engage in various voter suppression tactics and cause chaos or violence at the polls, uh, ordering federal agents to halt ballot counts or seize ballots, declaring martial law and deploying federal troops in response to protests, launching an assault of legal and administrative challenges to disqualify mail-in ballots and, de and demand recounts, using the Department of Justice or the U.S. Post Office or other federal agencies to open investigations into the election administrators, democratic organizations, elected officials, encouraging supporters to organize armed protests to intimidate election administrators or directly disrupt the ballot counts, as the GOP already did in Florida in Bush v. Gore. In other words, call the Proud Boys who he's asked to yes. temporarily stand down to stand up. Yeah, armed militias uh, just disrupting the process or convincing election administrators in Republican dominated counties to prematurely halt their ballot counts, 
some of these actions are illegal. Uh, it's not going to matter. He's going to do it anyway. And if he gets away with it, then it won't matter that it was illegal. So all of these are uh, that's going a, to that's be... a key point. Can you elaborate on yeah. the, the that a little bit? Because you know, people, um, you know, we in America we supposedly believe that nobody's above the law, but we've already seen examples where Trump has done things that are illegal, and because he got away with it, there are no consequences. What does that mean? Why would there be consequences if he fails, but not if he succeeds? I mean, essentially, it's because laws only have as much power as people give them. So if enough people stand up and say, I don't care about the law, it's not going to be enforced. I mean, when it's when we're talking about like the president of the United States, if he convinces enough people to uh, follow him in disobeying laws, then those laws have lost their power. There's ordinarily we have checks and balances like, you know, the courts and the legislature. But if they also end up siding with him, those laws become meaningless. So what you want to remember here is that you cannot rely on norms and laws and institutions in a case like this where it was it is actually an attempt to overthrow those things. What yeah, is yeah, that's matter? that's that's so key. And it is the thing that people who still think populism is a good thing um are overlooking, right? Is because yes. the, the Yang the, included. The, the, I mean, even he is relying on on our laws and institutions to uh, fix this problem if it arises, and it's, that's not going to work. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm well. I, I I'm curious to know more about why you think that about about Yang. I'm I'm just saying that I I think that people who believe in the um, populist rhetoric, which which uh, is at really at its heart is just about undermining faith in those various inst- those institutions themselves, right? And this be. is why wannabe dictators use populist rhetoric because it it's if they can convince people not to believe not to trust in those institutions, then they can corrode those institutions. Yeah, I would say it's populism isn't necessarily always about that, but that is always the path that a dictator or authoritarian will take because it's it's such a a good medium for it. But well, I um, guess that's what I'm saying. It's like I mean, I, I think the responsible, you know, Trump Trump um, is not living up to the the moral responsibility that comes with having the amount of power that he has. He's abusing the power, right? right? And and living up to the moral responsibility, you know, at, in his best moments, Biden would stand up and say, "No, we need to we need to have faith in our institutions. We need to, you know, like when when riots and broke yeah. out, well." When, when riots broke out while he was, um, while while Obama was president, um, Obama said, "Look, I understand that you're upset. I understand that you are struggling against certain local injustices. Um, we are going to look into it. We are going to institute some reforms. Um, but breaking the law is not the answer, right? You're not going to um, restore faith in the rule of law by turning into mass criminals. And so I think when Yang's talking about you know, we have to keep, we have to maintain faith in our institutions. I think he's trying to avoid that very thing. Because, you know, when you said oh, yeah, yeah. Trump, Trump's going to send in people to crack down, not just on rioters, but also on peaceful protesters. Well, the people who are making it easy for him to get away with that are the ones who are doing the rioting. If they would just stop rioting, if Trump was sending in armed people to do nothing but just harass protesters, and there wasn't also simultaneously a bunch of rioting going on, it would be much more, it would be much easier to see that what he's doing is wrong. But because of the rioting, he has at least some credibility in some people's eyes in terms of responding to criminal activity. 
what yeah, we actually need true. is we need local police to round up actual criminals so that protesters can protest freely without, you know, being associated with criminals. Yeah, I would say that like what's happening with rioting definitely does not uh, justify what Trump is doing, but it is true that it is giving him an excuse for what he's doing. That yeah, and it's yet another example of how far left radicals are, you know, only helping to ensure that fascism will prevail through their actions. Yeah, and it's it's hard to say like who exactly these people are that are rioting because they're it's a very diverse group and they're doing it for all sorts. Oh yeah, no, I agree. I don't think it's Biden supporters who are rioting. I think it's like anarcho-communists and socialists and also alt-right national socialists. I think it's it's the it's the ends of the horseshoe. Um, who are all about as far away from, you know, a, um, a centrist liberal like Biden as you could possibly be. I mean, they those people are doing the interests of Trump either intentionally or unintentionally, but either way, they're helping Trump. Yeah, it's important to remember that writing like this has happened all throughout American history. Um, we haven't had it going on for uh, in recent times, but this is not actually that unusual. I mean, no, no, it happened a lot during, during like Vietnam civil War protests. Too. This stuff happens. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Alex, um, so please it's, uh, it's finish your explanation like, of yeah. the of the the possible right. ways that Trump's going to screw with our democracy. I didn't mean to get you totally off track. So, if if we do get to the point where, um, you know, Trump and the GOP are taking these measures, trying to discredit the votes, trying to bypass the votes, then we get back into the situation where uh, we talked about where Congress is going to have to decide who's president, who's vice president. Um, that is going to be an extremely convoluted, messy political battle, uh, which the Democrats are going to have to fight dirty to win. And they are not good at that at all. And uh, speaking of Biden, he has come out and said, you know, I will abide by the outcome of the vote, which is great. That is what a president should say. Uh but at the same time, if that vote is actually not being counted, if the ballot counts are not complete by the safe harbor date, which is December 8th, which is going to be one of Trump's goals is to make sure that the ballot count does not get completed by that time. He's going to use all sorts of legal and illegal purposes to delay that count. Um, then that is not a legitimate election at that point. We need to we need to refuse to accept uh, Trump declaring victory or Congress declaring victory for Trump based on an incomplete vote count or, uh, you know, just an ignoring of the vote count. That is the that is the doomsday scenario that we need to be aware of and we need to consider anti-democratic. So uh, uh, what what would what would your proposed solution be if something like that were to happen? Yeah. So, for example, uh, governors need to be prepared to select electors for uh, Biden just so that they have the opportunity to send those to Congress. And then Congress gets to decide in this case um, whose electors to consider legitimate. But regardless, the governors need to send those electors, even if the state legislature is uh, sending opposing electors. So like if the state legislature is sending Trump electors, a Democratic governor needs to send Biden electors to Congress as well. That will uh, that will leave it up to Congress, which is an unfortunate situation. Uh, but that will be the result that Trump has forced at that point by trying to bypass the vote through the state legislatures. 
Yeah, no, about no doubt, and, and and surely Trump would try to characterize what the a, a Democratic governor was doing as yeah. them trying to have some kind of a coup. When in reality, it's just them responding to Trump's attempted coup. Correct. So yeah, that's an important to... thing for people to understand in advance. Um, yeah, that you know things could get really messy, really dirty. It could turn into violence on the streets, mm-hmm. and one person is responsible for all of that if it happens, and it is the chaos king, Donald fucking Trump. Well, and anybody well, yeah, who man, enables him. Yeah. And anybody who enables him. Okay, right. please continue. Um, so then it's going to turn into this really uh, gnarly political battle. And Democrats and... Oh, so what I was saying about Biden um, is that Biden cannot concede at that point. Like, this is this is my biggest concern, to be honest, is if we get to that point, um, I'm afraid that the Democratic Congress and Biden will be too attached to norms. They will be uh, too complacent and want to concede as Gore did in a very similar situation. Um, but at this point, like the people's That's vote true, is but being, this is so many more levels of yes. corruption and insanity than that. Like this no, is an actual that, coup attempt. They cannot take yeah. that path. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, you know, hanging chads, uh, were a thing, but what we're talking about here is an intentionally orchestrated coup that involves multiple states, and it's you know it's not just one argument about hanging chads in Florida. This is this is this is you know this is the president of the United States telling everybody in advance that he doesn't plan to count the actual votes of Americans who voted by mail yes. if they are for the wrong person. You know, so a whole other level of corruption. Yeah. So in this situation. Uh, we are going to need as citizens to support the Democratic Party in taking extraordinary measures, uh, doing things that are unprecedented to try and delay and uh, avoid the outcome of Trump winning an illegitimate election. So that may be anything from, uh, you know, Pelosi refusing to allow the senators in for a vote on uh, who won the electoral college if it's not going to go in Biden's favor. Um, it, it may you even mean, you mean you mean the House? Yes, the House. Um, it may even lead to the point where Pelosi gets sworn in as president is actually a possibility if the count is not uh, completed by January twentieth. Uh, uh, can you explain would... that? I mean, again, mm-hmm. this is all so complicated. <laughs> I, I love I thank you. Um, if I'm ever lost in a labyrinth, uh, I want you to be with me and, and for that, because <laughs> that's how I feel like I feel like we're lost in a, a labyrinth of political intrigue because we are, we're dealing, yeah. I mean, we're dealing with a guy who, you know, Trump has this reputation of 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 believing that the rules don't apply to him in business and and he's gotten away with it for too long. And this is something that you know, um, people complaining about about corruption in business are sometimes right. You know, the ironic thing is Trump's Trump says, you know, he's going to drain the swamp and he's actually filled the swamp with T-Rexes, like not not alligators. Yep. We're talking about, you know, like he's pulled out Hammond's uh, studies and he's created freaking T-Rexes and flooded the swamp with them. I and mean, we haven't seen a level of, of corruption like this in living memory. Uh, it's really bad and it could destroy it could destroy our democracy. So we are dealing with Really, I mean, it'll still be a democracy on paper, much like it is in Russia. Correct. But you know, Trump is following the the Putin the Putin playbook here. All right, please continue. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, the scariest part is it's not just us who's lost in this. It's going to be our elected officials are also going to be lost because this is an unprecedented scenario. There's no uh, super clear 
rules on how to handle it. Um, so that is why it's going to be uh, a knockdown, drag out political fight between, uh, unfortunately, between the Republican and Democratic Party, because it seems. And, and what, but what makes it unprecedented, too, is that we've never had an American president who was so hell bent on destroying America. Yes. Yes. Um, so, Go, so continue. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what what we're going to need to do is we need to start preparing right now for that possibility. Um, we need to be prepared for the chaos we're going to see in the streets, the chaos we're going to see in Congress, um, all through the all through the political spectrum, honestly. And we just need to be clear on when this becomes an illegitimate election, which is when the people's vote is bypassed. Um, we need to have our governor. We need to be demanding that all of our elected officials. Um, all the way from, you know, the local election board up to uh, Biden and Congress, all of them need to be committed to opposing this if it happens. And they need to be aware of all the actions that they can take to stop it. And they need to be uh, committing to us to take those actions, to not give up, uh, to, to not submit to an illegal election. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, I mean, that's the thing that bullies do. Bullies um, take advantage of the moral natures of their enemies. Yes. They they take advantage of the fact that in this case, Joe Biden is a decent man who doesn't want wish to see a bunch of chaos, who right. doesn't wish to see a bunch of violence. And Trump is per, he, he he doesn't just he's not just okay with chaos and violence. He thrives in it. He feeds yeah, off cool. of it like a fucking energy vampire. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think your I think your concern that Biden might concede is a very legitimate one, and if he were to do so, he would be doing so because he doesn't want wish to see violence in the streets. He doesn't wish to see a civil Correct. war. And if yeah. you're in a situation where you know um, one 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 person has has claimed an illegitimate victory, and somebody else um, set, stands up to him and says like, "No, sorry, this is not legitimate," that could turn into a civil war. And somebody like Biden might say it's not worth it. You know, like, we'll just yeah. we'll just let this clown run out the clock on his next four years. But of course, the danger there is if he's willing to do this, then what what would he, what else is he going to do? Is he going to yeah. rewrite the rules so that he can stay in office forever? So, I mean, it's it's we can we, if we start allowing people to get away with this level of transparent in the sunlight corruption, um, then we are simply giving up on the democratic experience. We are failing to um, live up to the values of our founders. We are betraying our founders. Yes. And that's essentially, uh, that's what happened with the Bush versus Gore in Florida situation is that the we now know that there were actually more votes for Gore, but the ballot count, the recount was stopped uh, by by the courts after riots organized by the GOP, um, that ballot recount was stopped and Gore conceded. It was stopped when Gore conceded, or rather it was stopped and then Gore conceded. Sorry. Um, because he, for those exact reasons, he did not want to undermine democracy. He did not want to uh, see it turn into uh, riots in the streets. And so he conceded and he let Bush win. And in that instance, that was a justifiable decision. But in this instance, when we know that it is an autocratic leader who is trying to overturn democracy, this could be very well the last 
free and fair election in American history if we allow it to be. Yeah, that's important to point out. Like, you know, they still hold elections in Russia. They're just sham elections. Right. That's the irony is the person who's who's calling re- our real elections sham is the one who wants to ensure that our elections are a sham. The yeah. person who is calling real news fake is the person who prefers fake news. And this applies to Trump, but it also applies to everybody who supports him, whether they're aware of it or not. They're, I, they're either on the wrong side of history because they're evil or because they're stupid. Yeah. So uh, to wrap it up, because we we definitely have gone over time, um, what I would like to ask of our listeners is that um, I'm going, we're going to have this uh, link to the thread, link to the document. Um, I would like to ask that you uh, take a look at it. We've mostly discussed it here, but send it to your elected officials, send it to your governor, to your election board, to your Congress people, uh, to Biden. Make sure that they are aware of the stakes. Make sure they are aware of the actions they can take. And uh, make make sure everyone in your life is aware of this as well. We need to be prepared. We need to prepare our officials. We need to be prepared to go out in the streets and protest en masse to shut down the country, to go on strike, if necessary, to prevent this coup from succeeding. Yeah, and I plan to have you back on, Alex, um, after the election. Uh, once we've some of the chips have fallen, and you've been carefully keeping track of what's happened, uh, so you know a week or two after uh, election day, uh, I'll have you back on to talk us through how it all played out. You, I think you laid out some of the possible avenues very well. It'll be interesting to see what actually happens, and I share your concern that um, you know Biden might might decide that, you know, rather than see a civil war, um, he wants to just let Trump get away with this unprecedented, un-American, anti-American um, behavior. But like, you know, if we if we let Trump and his enablers um, in Congress get away with it and his enablers in, in certain Republican controlled states get away with it, um, then we may not ever have another another chance to solve this problem. I mean, it might just be pushing civil war down the road or what I consider much more likely than a civil war um, is that we just, you know, turn into another yet another former democracy slash fake democracy like Russia, mm-hmm. which becomes a very stable state. It's um, democracies are inherently unstable because you have to constantly stand up for those things. You, like you said, the, the law only me- means something if people are willing to stand up for it. Uh, and, so in, in places where people have given up on that, it actually becomes very stable. It becomes extremely stable. Um, and that is part of the appeal of the authoritarian. The authoritarian says, you know, this is why China has run the way it is. Too many people are okay with it, you know? And, and I, I, see, I see this mentality um, in the Yang Gang and on the far left where people seem to say like, well, but, you know, as long as the Chinese Communist Party does a supposedly better job of taking care of the poor than, you know, liberal capitalist America, then I guess we should just embrace authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And oh, and by the way, you know, minorities and women and people of color and LGBT people, your rights like don't matter. Um, we're just going to let the the totalitarian government throw you under the bus. We're going to let them round up the Uyghurs and put them in concentration camps because, you know, it's more important that we get our way as far leftists than that we stand up for the human rights of our fellow fucking human beings. And I, 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 so I want to be really clear. I put those people in the same deplorable bas- basket as Trump's voters. If you're okay with letting it happen, you're just as bad as the people who are actively making it happen. Yes. And this is already the the thread that Trump is pushing with the rioting. He's using it to 
say it's okay to do all these uh, fascist policing measures, to violate states' rights, to violate personal uh, individual rights, because we need to establish order and we need uh, you know peace and and security. And that's always the way that it goes. Uh, right. But the so, way you can tell that that he's full of shit is because he's the person who is causing right. all of this chaos through his behavior. Right. He's yeah, the person who's making it necessary by by engaging in corrupt, illegal, anti-American, undemocratic practices. All right, Alex, thank you so much for coming on. I hope that when I have you back on, it'll be so that you can talk us through the good news and not the bad news. But we'll wait and see. I very much um, hope that, too. Yeah. All right. And uh, do you want to say it? Moving forward is our gumbo. Yes, it is. And Andrew Yang is still our taco. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together... Through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.